Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Environmental destruction, corruption, conflict and human rights abuse are inextricably related. They are part and parcel of a particular problem, the pursuit of profit over people and our planet, even as we reach existential threats to our societies. The people that are cutting down our forests, our last climate regulators, are also abusing the local communities, stealing and polluting their lands and attacking and killing those that stand up against this brutality. 2020 was the most dangerous year on record for environmental defenders around the world. People who risked and lost their lives for their communities and families. For you, environmental defenders are at the front lines of our carrier's climate crisis, defending our planet's lungs and its pulse. If we follow the money, we find that this brutality is being funded by our banks and institutional funds, which have publicly rallied against deforestation and other environmentally destructive activities, which they are concomitantly financing. COP26 did not deliver. But is it any surprise when fossil fuel industry representatives had the largest de facto delegation with 503 industry representatives? 27 countries had official fossil fuel lobbyists registered, including Canada, one of the worst emitters in the world and the second highest per capita, despite its hypocritical public attempts to appear climate conscious. Since 1993, Global Witness has been investigating and exposing the noxious nexus of corruption, conflict, human rights abuse and environmental destruction. From exposing the genocidal Khmer Rouge's financing of their terror through illegally cutting down rainforests, to being the first organisation in 1998 to bring the issue of conflict diamonds, or as Global Witness aptly put it, blood diamonds, to public attention, to its current reporting, including a recent report on the environmental destruction, corruption and terrorisation of local communities by Malaysian palm oil companies in Papua New Guinea, Global Witness's courageous undercover reporting, meticulous detail and rigorous analysis have exposed the inextricable links between these pernicious issues. Global Witness does not merely bear witness. It actively advocates for a more sustainable, just and equal planet. One where people can coexist with and not plunder and pillage their planet and each other. For in our neo-colonialist world, both our environment and its people are still being viewed and utilised as natural resources to be ruthlessly exploited until depleted. At COP26, Global Witness exposed the numerosity of fossil fuel industry delegates present and shined light on the murder of over 1,000 frontline environmental defenders since the Paris Agreement was adopted in 2015. I spoke with Patrick Alley, co-founder and co-director of Global Witness and a strategic leader who has participated in over 50 investigations throughout Asia, Africa and Europe on these issues and more. Patrick's upcoming book, Very Bad People, The Inside Story of the Fight Against the World's Network of Corruption, is out in March 2022. Welcome to Gravity, Patrick. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. You're one of the co-founders and a director of Global Witness, a nonprofit that for nearly 30 years has undertaken important and diligent undercover investigation and advocacy and exposed the inextricable relationship between human rights abuse, conflict, corruption and environmental destruction. Can you tell our audience more about how you started Global Witness and your first undercover investigation into illegal logging, propping up the Khmer Rouge and the work that you do now? I guess the birth of Global Witness was in the early 1990s, and I'd been interested in the environment um, for a very long time. I gave up a job in uh, the construction industry, uh, which I hated, um, and I ended up, after a sort of a a, a long travel, working for 
and volunteering for, in fact, a small environmental organisation in London called the Environmental Investigation Agency. And there I met two what, people who became my best friends, um, Charmin Gooch and Simon Taylor. And we found out we were all very interested in what was happening in Cambodia at that time, just on a personal level. And although the organisation we were working for looked at things like the, the ivory trade or the hunting of whales and dolphins and using investigations to get information to um, carry out advocacy. Um, anyway, so Cambodia was very big news at the time. The United Nations had mounted um, the biggest peacekeeping intervention ever at that time. They had uh, 21,000 troops on the ground and they were trying to bring an end to a decades-long civil war. And we read in the, the process of this that the Khmer Rouge, who were one of the warring factions, um, were boycotting the elections that the, the UN were trying to broker and had returned to the forest, their jungle bases, in the west and the north of Cambodia. And we read, just in, in newspapers, that they were trading timber with Thailand. And we looked at that and we thought, well, if they're trading timber, presumably they're raising money to fight a war. Presumably. We didn't know. Um, and we also asked ourselves another question, which is, is that an environmental issue because they're cutting down a rainforest? Mm -hmm. Or is it a human rights issue because they're presumably using the money to fund a war? Um, and of course, it was both. Um, but at that time, there was no organisation, and there largely isn't now, that looked at that nexus. So that was kind of a, a bit of a light bulb moment for us. And, um, and then we, we were sort of chewing it over in pubs. The, the Betsy Trotwood in Clerkenwood in London, as I remember, and then the Horseshoe was another one. Um, and then we thought, you know, using the kind of, or thinking about the, the methodology that the organisation we worked for used, we thought, well, if you've got some information about that, maybe you could advocate to get that border closed. If you close the border then the timber trade stops. If the timber trade stops, the money flow stops. And therefore, the Khmer Rouge don't have any money, and the war ends. So we thought, well, that's not a good idea. <laughs> um, why doesn't someone do that? Um, and we thought, well, why don't we? Um, but this was, you know, uh, you know we, we were three people with very little experience. Um, we had never done investigations. Uh, we knew nothing about timber. We'd never been to Thailand or Cambodia. We had no money and we had no organisation. But apart from all of that, it seemed like, you know, it was a gutter. Um, so we set out to raise money. We, you know, we all still had our day jobs. Um, and we started off by shaking cans at underground stations in London to try and get a few quid to pay the, the phone calls, uh, you know, the international calls we're making as part of our basic research in our spare time. Um, and we're getting about five pounds a day. We thought well, we're not going to save the world with that. Um, and then we uh, started sending out fundraising proposals to organisations like Friends of the Earth or Oxfam. And Friends of the Earth turned us down. We went to meet the, I think it was the boss or the, the second in command of Oxfam in Oxford. And we were shown into his office and said, oh, he'll be here in a minute. And we were looking at his desk, and there was our proposal on his desk. And scrawled across it was, will they survive? Um, and, uh, and yeah, we thought, okay, well. Um, but he obviously didn't think so, because they didn't give us any money either. Um, but then a few friends clubbed together, um, and we ended up with £1,000, which was, you know, it seemed like a lot at the time, but it was obviously not a lot. And we thought, well, we have to get serious here. And so 
um, Simon and I basically gave up our jobs um, and rented a one-room office in, in Clerkenwell uh, and had enough money for a month. Um, and we thought, part of the basic sort of philosophy in those days was if you do something for the right reason, something will work out, you know. And, and sure enough, a few weeks later, we got one of the proposals did come in. It was the Dutch version of Oxfam um, for £18,000. Uh, and we thought, oh, God, we're going to have to do what we said we were going to do. <laughs> and, uh, and what we had planned to do uh, was to carry out an investigation along the Thai-Cambodia border, which was a very dangerous place to be, probably at that time in the world, you know, one of the most dangerous places on the planet because the Khmer Rouge are not nice people. Um, and we thought what we'd do is pose as timber buyers um, and explore the border and see what we could find. You know, there's virtually no information you know, available any other way. And, of course, it's a pre-internet, um, so there's not a lot you could do that way. And so we bought some secret camera equipment because we thought we'd do undercover filming. And in January 95, we went to Bangkok, drove down to the southeast of Thailand. Um, and we made it up as we went along. You know, we, we, if you look at a map of southeast Thailand, there's a tiny sliver of land abutting the Cambodian border. And we thought well, that's quite a narrow piece of land. So if there is anything happening there, it'd be easier to see, won't it? Because it's narrow. Actually, it turned out to be true. You know, we, we, we drove down there and we saw these massive timber yards, thousands of rainforest logs stacked, um, you know, on, on the side of the road, basically. And behind them were the, the forested hills of Cambodia. And behind that, of course, was, was, was the Khmer Rouge. And so we started going into these places. We've made lots of mistakes, you know, like the feeling a little bit nervous, you know, as you stop at the gate, think, shall we go in, shall we not? Some timber yard, which makes everyone inside you know, wholly suspicious of what you're doing. But we, eventually we, we learned the psychology of it. And we'd created a cover, um, which was, uh, we, we created false business cards. Um, my name was Chris Manners and, and Simon's was Richard Sutton. Um, and we created this company name, which was, which was, uh, Universal Export, which was the name that Ian Fleming gave MI6 in the James Bond books and films. So we thought, well, if it's good enough for them, you know, it's good enough for us. Um, yeah, so we, that's what we did. And then we managed, we just asked them, you know, what kind of timber have you got? How much are you getting? What species? Um, how much are you paying? Who are you buying it from? Um, and they told us. Um, we're buying it from the Khmer Rouge. We pay this much, you know. We talk to the truck drivers. You see the truck drivers on the side of the road with these massive trucks loaded with logs. And they were the people who knew where they went inside Cambodia, how often they went, what they brought out, and where they took it to. It's a fantastic source of information. And we worked out that the Khmer Rouge were earning between 10 to $20 million per month from that trade. Um, and... With, and we got the information sort of more easily than we expected we would. Um, and we thought, okay, well, th and this is a key part of the global witness sort of ethos, is, okay, you've got the information, but it's no good if you didn't do anything with it. So we thought, what can we do with it? And so we went to the, the countries that had signed the Paris Peace Accords, which were the, the accords that were trying to bring an end to this war. Um, and I remember it was just really hard to get a meeting. You know, we created this organization called Global Witness, but we had no track record. And so even the most junior program officer in the foreign office, well, why, why would I talk to you? Um, you know, see, we had to fight to get meetings. Um, but actually it was in the US, it was the, the breakthrough place, because Alan Thornton, who founded the organization we used to work for, who had been a great supporter of this new venture, 
um, said, well, Washington is where, you know, that's where you change the world. And so we arrived in D.C. not knowing anything about the U.S. system. You know, and we were guided around by a wonderful woman called Kathy Knight from Oxfam, America, who sort of, she's a veteran Vietnam War protester and, and showed us how, you know, told us how D.C. worked. And, and so we took our information to the State Department, to the various congressional committees, um, and people said, well, you know, we don't think this is happening. You know, they didn't want to believe it because Thailand was a key ally. Um, and, and under the Foreign Operations Act, the U.S. could sanction military aid to any country that um, that uh, supported the Khmer Rouge. So it was a, it was a key audience. But, then, but we had the photos, we had the documents, we had the information. Um, so we did that and sort of, sort of sat back, thought, where's this going to go? We did another investigation in May '95 and got more information and kind of really sort of cemented the the actuality of it, went back to the States. Well, actually, we did two things. We did a press conference in Phnom Penh and Bangkok at the end of that investigation. We always used to do a press conference at the end of an investigation so we could run away afterwards before, <laughs> before we were arrested. Um, and then to the States. And what we didn't know was the day after that press conference in Bangkok, we didn't find this out for a year, the Thais did close the border. Um, and it was absolutely due to sort of behind-the-scenes US pressure. Um, and within 18 months, the Khmer Rouge had defected. Um, they had run out of money. Yeah. And so we wouldn't claim total credit for that. There were other things at play for their defection, but the money we cut. And so rather surprisingly, five months after our first investigation, we had done what we set out to do. Amazing. It's very admirable work that you did and you're still continuing to do. And I now wanted to switch to your work on conflict minerals and Global Witness, aided the creation of the Kimberley process and the Extractive Industries Transparency Index. You also coined the term blood diamond, which is a brilliant term. It perfectly encapsulates the contradiction of what diamonds are marketed for, this purity, purity of love, purity and clarity of the actual diamond, whereas um, there's so much pain and death in the supply chain. It's like Lady Macbeth with the spotted blood in her hand that she can't get rid of when you look mm, at your yeah. diamond and you don't know where it comes from. So I wanted you to enlighten our audience on your work on uh, conflict minerals and how you aided the creation of the Kimberley process and the index. Okay, so what, what happened then is, you know, shortly after our... We, I should say on the Cambodia work, we carried on working on Cambodia for a couple of decades in, in various ways, so that was still going on. Um, but our old boss, again, EIA, um, Alan Thornton, came up with the, the notion of this issue of conflict diamonds. Um, at that time, in the late 1990s, West Africa, notably Sierra Leone, uh, Liberia and Angola were being torn apart by some of the most brutal wars of the last half of the 20th century. Mm. Um, and they were kind of, some of them, not all of them, were kind of the, the, the dying ebbs of, of the, cold, the, the proxy Cold War conflicts. Um, and there were rumours. I mean, the diamond industry knew well as it transpired what was going on, but, you know, the general public were not aware of this issue of blood diamonds. It just wasn't talked about. It was just, you know, something that was behind the scenes, but, we, you know, we'd been tipped off that something was, was going on in, in that direction. And we thought, OK, and this is where you had to sort of be quite strategic when you're doing a campaign. We thought, if we try and focus on all of those countries at once, and the, and the wars were all slightly different for different reasons, then that's going to be too confusing for anyone. So we'll pick on one country, um, which was Angola. And just put that in context, 
uh, Angola was a, was way into years and years of civil war. That they were in the third civil war, consecutive civil war since their independence in the seventies, and there were enormously bloody wars. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Um, and UNITA were the, the rebel group, the right-wing rebel group, and the government was the Marxist MPLA government. And so UNITA had been supported um, by the states and the MPLA by the, by the Soviets um, and, and Cuba, amongst others. Um, and so we, we were looking at this and thinking, oh, what, what, what can we do here? And, and we sort of made a few exploratory visits to Angola, um, and this is, yeah, again, a really important thing to do is not just sort of come in from the outside with preconceived ideas. It's sort of to go in and find out what's what. And everyone we talked to said, yeah, diamonds are a real problem. You know, Unisha are using diamonds. That's how they're funding their war. But that's not the important thing I'm saying. Oil is the important thing. And the government was funding its war with offshore oil. Um, and... People said also, you can't work on one of those things because if you do, you'll be accused of being partisan. Um, so we thought, oh, this is getting a bit complicated. Um, and so we almost didn't work on diamonds. Um, but then we thought, okay, we want to do something on oil. Um, but to do that, we're going to have to work on diamonds anyway. And we'll, we'll do it as a sort of, this is a bit of a joke, really, in hindsight, as a spoiler, you know, for the campaign that we think really matters. Um, and not that diamonds didn't, because they were a major part of the funding of the war. Anyway, so we started looking at it, and we realised quite quickly we couldn't investigate diamonds the way we investigated timber. You can't pretend to be a diamond dealer. We did try, and we failed. Um, it's the diamond industry. It's a closed industry. Everybody knows each other. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there, there were various diamond centres, you know, Antwerp being the major you know, entrepot for most of the global diamond trade at that time. Diamonds from all over the world flow into Antwerp and then out again. And there was one major protagonist, which was this British South African cartel, De Beers. Uh, and that company bought, at that time, 80% of the global production of rough diamonds. It's extraordinary to think about it. And they did that because they needed to keep the... They wanted to manage the prices. They were a cartel. Um, and to maintain their cartel status, they had to buy as many diamonds as they could regardless of where they came from. So we were in this bit of conundrum where we wanted to find out what was going on, but we couldn't do it undercover. And in the end, it was a relatively simple answer. Um, we looked at De Beers' annual report, and they would say things like, you know, the fact that we bought X amount of diamonds from Angola in 1997 is a testament to the skill and strength of our buying teams. You know, they had things like that. But the diamond fields were controlled by UNITA. So if De Beers were buying the diamonds, they were buying from the rebels, de facto. They were kind of admitting it, though they didn't say so. Um, and what we did was to produce a report called Rough Trade, uh, which came out in December 98. And we had, you know, De Beers' annual reports for sort of five, six years. And we compared that with the number of deaths from the conflict in each of those years, um, which was a pretty stark figure. It was slightly more complicated than that, but that, that's essentially what we did. Um, and the report came out by complete coincidence on the day that the latest round of peace negotiations broke down and war broke out again. And suddenly, you know, we, we'd issued it, you know, Charmin and colleague Alex Sears were in, in our office faxing it out to the, the, all the press contacts we had in the morning and waiting for the phone to ring, and suddenly the phones went mad. Um, and 
the press from all over the world, you know, America, the UK, Africa, you know. Uh, and it went mad. The Belgian ambassador phoned up Charmin and was shouting at it down the phone because we'd been slagging off Antwerp as the, uh, as the major entrepot. Um, and it, it just really hit a chord. And, yeah, we'd had no press coverage on anything virtually up to that point. We were still only about six or seven people, uh, only two of whom worked on diamonds. Um, and it really... Basically, the UK and the US governments picked it up, but almost immediately, without any persuasion, they thought, this has got to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, cutting what I'm talking, telling a very long story, but essentially what happened was that, you know, the UK, the US met counterparts in other countries and certainly in African countries. Um, and the, the Kimberley process grew out of that. Um, and essentially, it was, it was a mechanism whereby all the diamond-producing countries and diamond-consuming countries um, would agree a certification scheme that would track a diamond from the mine to uh, to the shop to the to the, to the buyer. Um, and it it was a tortuous process. It took some years, and you know, Charmin and Alex were just jetting to you know every week to somewhere else in the world. It exhausted them. It was really really tiring. And there was lots of, you know, shenanigans going on. But yeah, eventually it, it got there. You mentioned the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. That meant that we could now work on oil. But so that was the, the Blood Diamond campaign. That was our, you know, entree into, into conflict resources, which again was something that no one had really done before. And what about the Extractive Industries Transparency Index and that creation, if you could just go into that a little bit? What was happening with, with Angolan oil was that, that the oil was offshore. Yeah. Um, and you could argue that a sovereign government had the right to use a natural resource to fund its, in this case, its, its defence um, and, and to fund the war. Um, but the real question was that there were loads of rumours about corruption in the oil industry and no one knew what the annual oil revenue was. These were secret figures. The IMF didn't know and they had a programme in Angola, and no one could find out. But the estimates were around about 25% of the oil revenues were disappearing, which is, in those days, and it's a much bigger figure now, but um, around a billion a year at least. Um, and it was going into this sort of cabal around the president. And our basic premise was that the Angolan people need to be able to hold their government to account. You know, where are the schools? Where are the hospitals? Where are the roads? But if you don't have the numbers, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we called on the Angolan government to publish what they earned from the strike, but they obviously were not going to do that. And so we thought, okay, we need to get the companies to publish what they pay. And my colleague Simon sort of coined this phrase, publish what you pay. Um, but of course, the companies didn't want to meet either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Exxon, Shell, whatever. Um, and it was about this time that we, we met with George Soros, um, who's since become uh, one of our biggest funders, but also a fellow campaigner. So he wrote to people like George Bush and Tony Blair um, and company bosses. And we started to get meetings um, with companies. And, um, and we started working with a, a wider network of NGOs. And we launched um, in the early 2000s the Publish What You Pay campaign uh, with George Soros, with Oxfam, Transparency International, Save the Children. Um, and that's now a, a global movement of a thousand NGOs um, across the world, and not just NGOs, individuals. You know, um, 
around the world. And it was that that led to the creation of the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, which is this intergovernmental uh, mechanism that actually is, is quite unique because it brought together um, companies, governments, and civil society all with an equal place at the table. And essentially, the governments of the countries that signed up to it had to declare what they earned from oil and mining. The companies had to publish what they paid. Um, and civil society had oversight. So if there was a difference in those two, <laughs> two, two numbers, then, then you could answer questions. But the real problem was it's what was and is a voluntary scheme. So lots of countries didn't sign up. If they did sign up, then the companies had to play ball. If they didn't sign up, then there's nothing much you can do. But, and that remains you know, the biggest global anti-corruption mechanism in oil and mining that there is. So that was sort of... So thank you. No, <laughs> well, that's where I got to. And, and I should say that you know, by this time, a lot of NGOs, you know, we had a lot of allies working on this. Um, you know, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the, the NGOs I just mentioned. So it was, it was becoming a movement. So I want to move now to uh, environmental defenders. 2020 was one of the most dangerous years on record for frontline environmental defenders, uh, from arrests to suits to beatings and uh, 227 recorded murders, and perhaps there are more that are not able to be identified. And nearly all of these murders, except one, I think, in Canada, occurred in the global south. And disproportionately against Indigenous people, I believe a third of the recorded murders were from Indigenous communities and they only comprise 5% of the global population, but they are custodians of our most vital uh, biodiverse places on Earth, and so that is why they are the frontline defenders. Um, and these murders seem to be coming from essentially corporate land grabs from, for custodial territories. So may you tell our audience more about what intimidation and terror environmental defenders on the frontline are faced with? Yeah, certainly. We began the campaign because a former colleague of ours in Cambodia, a forest activist called Trip Voti, was murdered in 2012. And that was the first time you know, anyone I knew personally had, had been killed. And it was that that led us to believe, because we all knew, you know, from Chico Mendes years ago, that, you know, people you know, fighting on those front lines were getting killed. Um, but we thought we needed to find out how big the problem is. And we thought, well, let's try and do that. Let's try and document it. And let's try and do an annual report that charts this. Um, and, you know, the, the first one was sort of a slightly amateurish job, but we've got quite good at it. Um, so in terms of what happens on the front line, um, as you say, you, you get... This is all tied in with corruption, of course. So a company might want to, uh, you know, open a cattle ranch, plant soy, deforest an area, whatever. And usually the first that local people would know about it is when the bulldozer shows up on the doorstep. They're not consulted in advance. Um, and it's what you'll very often find is that a company will have bribed a minister or law enforcement or whatever. So the usual, um, you know, sort of safety net that you might expect, like, you know, they'd have an ability to complain or take someone to court or to call the authorities to help them, are all denied to them. Um, and they're left with no option but to protest. Um, and it's not just about the land, it's the whole way of life um, of, of wherever it happens to be. And if law enforcement isn't on your side, then you're completely vulnerable. Um, and in some of the more remote areas of the world, that results in probably initially, if you're lucky, warnings 
maybe beatings, um, and then ultimately, or maybe initially, killings. Um, and it's quite ruthless. You know, it's partly because there's an almost total impunity for the people who carry out the killings. You know, the figures globally are sort of single digit, virtually not percent <laughs> prosecutions. Um, it's so that it's a free hand. People have a free hand to do that. And so, you know, people are you know, shot in front of their families, tortured. I heard of one instance of a young man crucified in Brazil. Um, you know, it's just a, a, a bloody business. And it's, these are the people, especially, you know, if you're looking at indigenous people, who are the best protectors of the natural biodiversity, the forest that we have. Um, they are on the front lines. They're fighting every day. They don't want to be. They have to be. They have no choice. Um, and so you've got some of the most vulnerable people on earth against some of the most powerful, well-funded and brutal opposition that you can imagine. So Global Witness is exposing how financing is imperative to deforesting agribusiness and contributing to the climate crisis from leading global financial institutions. And mostly they are financing the destruction of the world's last climate regulator, which are old-growth forests, carbon sinks. This is also in crisp contradiction to their messaging, where they proclaim that they are all about climate change and against deforestation. I think in your report, JP Morgan hosted a talk on deforestation while they were financing all these companies that were actively deforesting old-growth forests and so forth. Can you tell us more about how global financial banks and funds finance deforestation and the attendant habitat destruction land grabs and terror that are attendant to it and how financing is actually vital to this? Yeah, the financing of forest destruction is, is one of the most critical issues that we're dealing with and it's completely tied into the, the climate crisis. Without the world's forests, without the tropical rainforest, we cannot possibly keep within the goals of Paris. Um, and... Basically, if, if you want to, if you're an agribusiness um, and you want to plant palm oil or uh, have cattle or whatever, ranch cattle, then you need money. You need to buy land, you need to buy equipment, you know, you're dependent completely on money. And we've produced, uh, we decided that actually the money, focusing on the money is the best way to deal with this. We've spent, you know, years of our history has had many other organisations, you know, exposing illegal deals, or whatever, but we weren't winning the war. Um, so this, I think, is a crucial way forward. So, for example, uh, we produced a report um, very recently called Deforestation Dividends, which showed how uh, various banks, and we're talking about you know, big banks like JP Morgan or, or HSBC or Barclays or BNP Paribas or Rabobank or ABN AMRO, have ploughed in $154 billion over the last five years uh, into companies that were deforesting the world's tropical forests, you know, for, for agribusiness. Um, if you put that in contrast to the um, the agreement to halt deforestation at COP26 in Glasgow, where th that comes with a, a you know a, a funding of 19.2 billion, um, so it, you know, it's completely skewed. Um, and a lot of the banks, if not all of the banks I just mentioned, um, have zero deforestation policies. So as far as their customers are concerned, well, that looks great, doesn't it? Oh, do you, yeah, they don't do this, but they do do this. Um, and of course, um, this all sort of tracks right through the supply chain. So um, 
the companies that you know, who are actually sort of running those agribusinesses are selling to global brands like Cargill or Hershey's or Kellogg's, um, Nestle, you know, companies of that stature who are buying, you know, if it's palm oil, they're buying that, that palm oil. Um, so we need to put pressure on those banks um, to, to stop providing that finance. Right, and without the finance, there would be no deforestation, right? Or, or quite a lot less of it. <laughs> it it's it's, it's going to really slow it down. And it's, it's, it's like trying to grab a snake, really, uh, with, with these banks, because it's quite hard to track this stuff. But at Global Witness, we have, um, and it's been especially helpful during COVID, a data investigations team. So a lot of this stuff, like, you know, from the, the clunky old days when you're running around the, the forest in a four by four, um, now you can do a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, from the desk with a computer and tracking the financial flows, tracking the supply chains. Right. In the supply chains, in palm oil, soy, beef, pulp, I mean, these are all the major products that are cutting down old growth forests, right? Yeah. So greenwashing is so much in vogue these days that even the fossil fuels industry has embraced it. And Global Witness recently filed a complaint with the FTC over Chevron's greenwashing in their marketing and one ad in particular, I believe. What are some of the misleading statements that Chevron is making in the ad? Okay, yes, a really good example um, of greenwashing is um, Chevron, who placed ads saying how green they were, how climate friendly they were, how much they're investing in renewables. Um, and, And we crunched the numbers and they're spending, you know, 0.2% 0.2% of their expenditure is on those issues they were talking about. Um, so it's obviously patent rubbish what they're saying, mm. which is why we've um, taken out that complaint. Right. And do they claim that they're uh, using natural gas and that they're a natural resource company in their ad? The, the thing we're trying to tackle here is that the fossil fuel industry has very successfully marketed the idea that natural gas, as they call it, fossil gas, um, is the transition fuel um, that, that we need to, to address the climate crisis. But in fact, it's a massive carbon emitter. Of course it is. It's, it's fossil gas. And so this is something that we really need to, to try and tackle. And so, you know, our campaigns in Europe are looking at trying to take the subsidies out of the infrastructure um, that will transport that gas. And in, in the States, we're trying to um, tackle you know, the fact that the U.S., by the end of the Biden administration, will be the biggest exporter globally of fossil gas. How does that equate with the climate claims that the Biden administration are making? Um, so we're, we're tackling this, you know, greenwashing sounds simple, but actually it completely perverts the political discourse um, because it completely misinforms the general population. So if they're misinformed, they're not going to be questioning what their banks do on deforestation um, or what their governments are doing relating to fossil fuels. So we have to tackle it, which is why um, we've mounted that complaint against Chevron. And, and if we win that, it's hugely important because that precedent will be set mm-hmm. um, that you know fossil fuel companies don't have free reign to lie through adverts to consumers. They definitely don't, and hopefully the FTC will take this on. And if not, I suppose there's also litigation under various state statutes of deceptive trade practices. Um, But this is really important that uh, Global Witness is using the terminology uh, liquefied fossil gas instead of natural gas, because you made a very good point that natural gas appears like it's a transitional fuel or something that's 
not dirty and not cozy and eco-friendly. Yes, eco-friendly. <laughs> and words matter, right? I mean, that is how we structure our thoughts, through words. <laughs> and um, so the terminology that we set really sets the paradigm for that understanding. And when you really think about it, a lot of things are natural. Even coal is natural. But no one would think that coal is a natural energy source. We know that it's dirty or oil is, but that's also natural, right? I mean, it's not that you're making oil in the lab. We are taking it from the ground. So I do think that pointing out that this is still a fossil fuel, that this is still pollution and uh, not a renewable, sustainable energy source is pertinent, if not visceral, to the paradigm of how we're going to transition into clean energy. Yeah, the, the bottom line is that if we want to meet the, the goals of Paris, if we want to live on a sustainable planet, fossil fuels have to stay in the ground. That's, that's it, yeah. period. That has to happen. You can't turn off the switch just like that. But you can stop developing new infrastructure. You can stop exploring for new fields. Yeah, and of course we have to stop cutting down old growth forests. And they have to stop cutting old, down old growth forests, and they have to do that now. That, that's easy. Yeah. So while we need to be vigilant and combat greenwashing, it's very embraced by these dirtiest industries seems to me a positive step because the paradigm has shifted. You don't see anybody in general saying, hey, I don't care if I'm dirty. I don't care. I don't care if I'm polluting the world. I don't care if I'm contributing to climate change. No one would dare say that. Instead, they're saying, well, we're transitioning and we're, I mean, they're delaying, they're, they're uh, greenwashing, but at least we've come to this precipice where it's unjustifiable to admit that you're dirty, even though they're trying to, they're still, their actions are still dirty, they're still polluting, they don't care, but at least their words have changed. And you think, well, maybe the next logical step is they won't be able to do that anymore. Yeah, I, I guess it is a sign that, the opposition to fossil fuels is getting somewhere, but we don't have much time to get it right. That's the thing. Um, The same thing happened with the tobacco industry. It's a kind of a joke. My sister-in-law has an advert from an old magazine on her wall from the 50s, I think, saying, the doctor recommends you smoke camel cigarettes. (laughs) You know, I think, yeah, right. Um, And we're we're sort of, we're in that phase now with fossil fuels, you know. we're being fed that it's okay. We're being fed that actually fossil fuels are important for the development of poorer countries. Um, the bottom line is the fossil fuel industry is out of control. It's all powerful. It has politicians wrapped around its little fingers, and we have to break that connection. Yeah, the, the, the key thing we need to do is break the toxic friendships between the fossil fuel industry and politicians. Right now, the fossil fuel industry has politicians wrapped around their little fingers and everyone's frightened to say boo, but we have to break that connection. We do. But looking at sort of the big picture of it, one way we can do that is also by addressing campaign finance and the way that we do elections in the US. Because if you are forced to get campaign funds from industries and then you have nobody from the green energy sector and you have everybody from the fossil fuel sector. I mean, people are people and they have egos and they want to keep their seat or get a seat. There are many, many structural issues with respect to campaign finance, but I do think that there's an intersection of issues there. Yeah, I completely agree. And this is something that from Global Witness has not taken on sort of as a major focus. 
But I, I think that, personally, I think that corporate donations should be kept out of politics. There shouldn't mm-hmm. be those donations. If we just see politicians, you know, decisions perverted by this all of the time. I believe in the US that... Citizens United means that can't be done right now. And I'm not, I don't really understand all of the reasons why. But yeah, you know, politicians are in hock to the fossil fuel industry. It's, mm-hmm. it's like the mafia. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not far different, except in fact, far more dangerous than the mafia. A tragic point, but so true. I want to now address, since we're getting into this, this intersectionality of environmental destruction, human rights abuse, conflict and corruption, which Global Witness has really exposed in its reports over the years and done so diligently and meticulously. And I'd like to discuss this interplay in terms of specific case studies. Um, For instance, your work in Papua New Guinea. But before we get into that, I'd like to address the big picture Why do these issues, environmental destruction, human rights abuse, conflict and corruption, why do they go hand in hand in so many places? Yeah, I I think corruption, human rights abuses, environmental destruction have always gone hand in hand. And and the surprising thing is that, and I'm not trying to blow blow our own trumpet, but Global Winds were about the first organisation that sort of really hit hit that nexus. Um, And I think it's, it's actually relatively obvious that, you know, but I think people tend to think to separate things out falsely. Mm. Um, you know, the environment, you know, that's one thing. So, okay, it's environmentally problematic to cut down a forest without actually thinking, well, who's in that forest? Forests are not places without people. Mm-hmm. Um, people are an integral part of the ecosystem. The indigenous peoples, forest-dependent communities, are an integral part of the ecosystem of the forest. So if you're hitting the forest, you're hitting those people. Um, corruption is what makes the deals possible that do it. Um, So, for example, uh, Indigenous people under the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People have the right to free, prior and informed consent. But so often, i.e., they can say no. Right. But so often that's totally ridden over roughshod with a bulldozer. Um, And so if a company gets a concession in a forest or another piece of land... Um, to ranch cattle or plant soy or sugar or whatever product or commodity it is, then whose land is it? And how do they get the permission? And usually they'll be bribing some politician to get that deal very often. And if, and this is a key thing, if you've bribed a politician, then that politician's responsibilities, although it should be to their citizens, is in fact then their, their loyalties are pledged to the company that paid. Mm. Um, so you've perverted the, the roots of democracy in one go, if you're in a country lucky enough to have a democracy. If you haven't got one, then that's another story. Um, and then you risk losing all of the other supports that you expect in an ordinary society, like is the judiciary on your side, is law enforcement on your side. Um, and so one of the reasons that we... A lot of what we've done is focused on what's become known as the resource curse, whereby some of the world's richest countries in natural resource terms are, in fact, some of the most screwed. Poverty rates are high, authoritarian regimes, corruption, precisely because they're resource rich. And that's happening now. And that's still what we're looking at now. Continuous conflict. Yeah. And and one country that exemplifies all that is the DRC, right? The DRC is probably the most resource-rich country in the world. It has about 26 trillion, I believe, in um, resources. It has two-thirds of the world's supply of cobalt. It has lots of reserves of coltan and gold. 
And this intersectionality in the DRC between conflict and corruption and the resource curse, I mean, obviously, you could go back to King Leopold and his um, genocide for rubber. But I wanted to address uh, two parks in the DRC, Virunga and Salonga National Parks, that are vital to biodiversity and ecological and climate stability, as well as a vital resource to their surrounding communities. As you pointed out earlier, when you get rid of a forest, you're not only causing habitat destruction, but you're actually um, destroying the livelihoods and the culture of the surrounding uh, communities. But these are all going to be threatened by permits to drill, including under Lake Edward. And that would be an ecological disaster. Could you tell us about the current situation and the corrupt and clandestine practices of these companies, Comico and Soco, that have attained permits to drill in the parks? Yeah, so this area in Africa is of key importance. Um, where you've got some of well, Africa's oldest national park is Virunga. Um, and a British oil company, uh, albeit led by an American citizen, Soco, uh, got the rights to explore uh, for oil in the park. Um, and that was initially exposed in a, in a really good film called Virunga. And we worked closely with the filmmakers and produced a report called Drillers in the Mist, um, which looked at how they bribed security forces um, and, and to, you know, uh, beat up the local population or whatever to sort of f- further their uh, exploration there. But the, um, and we, we managed, we and others in a campaign to get them to pull out. We talked to the investors in, in Soco, like the Church of England or Aviva, who, who pulled out. But the, the key problem there, and it's, it's sort of, the problem has expanded, in fact, since um, 2018 when that was happening. So you have Lake Edward, which is, um, I remember the figures, but something like, 30,000 people depend on fish from Lake Edward. It's, of course, of tremendous ecological importance. But what you have around this border between Uganda and DRC is, you know, oil obviously there under it. And now in Uganda, uh, around the Murchison Falls National Park, for example, you've got Total uh, developing infrastructure there. Total are building a pipeline which would take oil to the east coast of Africa. And once that's there, you've opened up the whole thing. Um, and that absolutely is going to be a disaster. Of course, it's riding roughshod over the rights of local people. Um, It's riding roughshod over some of the the most biodiverse rich areas in the world. Um, And, you know, if you look at the governments in those countries, like Uganda, you know, a lot of this is uh, tied to the family of um, Stephanie and, and, you know, his his brother runs the army and clamps down on people. Um, incidentally called Global Witnesses Enemy of the State for for talking about it, but anyway. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so it's a real, um, it's a real shit show, but it's not waiting to happen, it's happening. I want to now move to your recent report on Papua New Guinea. So Global Witness recently published a report on the Stygian palm oil sector in Papua New Guinea, and Papua New Guinea is of extreme importance to biodiversity in the world. I believe it has um, hundreds of endemic species of birds and other wildlife. And even though the Papua New Guinean constitution provides rights to communities, uh, traditional use of land, and has very strong environmental laws, at least on paper, your report has exposed how it might be good on paper, but it does not work in practice. And your report also showed the intersectionality of this corruption, environmental damage, human rights abuse, terrorization, or environmental defenders. 
And before we get into more details of what you uncovered, I wanted to first discuss how you um, actually achieved the mechanics of this undercover investigation. Well, to do an undercover investigation, you need to do an awful lot of research first because um, mm-hmm. you need to know who you invest or who you want to investigate. Because the point of doing an undercover investigation is usually because it's the last resort. You can't find out the information another way. Right. Um, and so you don't necessarily know what you're going to get, but you at least have to go in um, in, a, in as targeted a way as you can. Um, you can't be too scattergunned because it costs a lot of money to do, like to, to get someone to that country. It can be potentially a very dangerous thing to do. If you get it wrong, you know, there's only many, so many times you can sort of take a secret camera into someone's office and, and go out and say, oh, God, that was crap at the film. Can I go back in and do it again? You know, um, I have <laughs> yeah, the lighting was off. <laughs> <laughs> I did do that once, but anyway. Um, and, yeah, you just need to make sure you've got a good backup team um, you need to make sure that, you know, if you're getting, you know, audio or video material from that investigation, that you're securing it very quickly and and getting it out. It might, might be a country where you can't, you know, you, someone nicks your, you know, takes your computer or your phone with, and, that, and the stuff's on it, then you've lost it. And, and you might also um, you know, be arrested depending on where it is for having it. So you have to take security very, very seriously, security of the material, security of the people you're working with, because presuming an investigation goes well and we go, local people are still there. And if someone gets really, really angry about whatever it was we did, is that going to impact on someone else? You need to take that into account. Um, It may be that you want to work with a local partner to actually do some of that investigation themselves, because, you know, if if you're sort of coming in um, with a white skin into something like Papua New Guinea, um, there are some places you can't get and some people who won't talk to you. Um, so better to have a local person doing it if it's safe for them to do and if they have the capacity to do it. So it's quite a, it's a, a big operation to do. Hmm. Yeah, because you, you received very compromising testimony. <laughs> and so um, your undercover investigators must have been quite credible. Well, it's interesting because, you know, thinking of, of the particular person concerned, you know, he did another investigation uh, in another area of the world once and uh, he in New York and he wore a white linen suit he had bought for the occasion because um, he thought it made him look some way and he uh, had been in Africa a lot so he kind of looked that part. But he went into sort of top Manhattan Lloyds with a pair of Birkenstocks on. And in a way, he was so implausible, everyone would believe him because he would never possibly be that implausible. Um, you know, um, a, a lot of it's psychology. You know, yeah. it's, it's quite scary to do because you, you're always thinking, am I going to be uncovered? Um, and so you have to think, actually, they don't suspect me. Why would they? Um, you have to have that. But going back to your point about, you know, what do they tell you? Um, it is remarkable what people will tell you. Mm. You, know, some, you sit there and you think, <laughs> so they saying this. So with that Papua New Guinea investigation, for example, um, we talked to you know, the, the companies that were concerned there in East New Britain who were um, taking palm oil out. And they told us about how, you know, oh, well, you know, we need to keep the local population quiet. So, you know, occasionally in one evening I'll contact the, my police friends and we'll drive in there in a four-wheel drive. We'll beat a few people up. Um, lock some others in a shipping container for a day or two. And that generally keeps people quiet for a while. He told us that. Mm. Proud of it. Laughing. Um, and you just think the frustration of that was great. You got that guy. Um, 
that is, how many other people are doing that all of the time? I mean, mm -hmm. we're just scratching the surface. Um, but at least it makes it more difficult. And so, but that admission, it's just business as usual, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the local people matter nothing um, to these people. Uh, and in the case of the, you know, the Papua New Guinea investigation, what you're looking at is this really egregious situation where these, in this case, um, Malaysian companies, um, many of them linked to this company from Sarawak called Rimbun and Hijau, um, go in there, they raise thousands of hectares of rainforest. And Papua New Guinea has the third largest rainforest in the world. It's, again, is critical to, the, to mitigating climate change, one of the most biodiverse forests in the world. So they're raising it that way, but that's not where the problem stops. Um, because then they're planting palm oil. Mm -hmm. um, and so I already talked about you know, the, the people who are getting beaten up um, for protesting or, or whatever. But then you get, you know, who's going to actually work on the palm oil plantations? Well, the local people now, of course, have got nothing. They, they can't harvest the forest like they used to harvest the forest you know, in terms of uh, natural foods, medicines, um, bushmeat, whatever. Um, so they have to work on a palm oil plantation. And the labour conditions we found out in Papua New Guinea are awful, with people having died, people having, you know, suffering life-changing injuries, um, with no compensation, no recourse, um, by these companies who also admitted to our investigator that they were evading tax on the whole deal anyway. Um, they were shipping palm oil via Malaysia to India, which sort of results in certain taxes. Um, 4% off, right? Yeah. 44%, it was 40% tariff or something. Yeah, and so they just said it was from Every percent counts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's like they got a checklist of how bad would, can we be here? You know, how many how many bad things can we do? And they've ticked most of them. And child labour, right? It's child labour. Extremely yeah. hazardous. I mean, apart from the fact that your report exposed how very simple and not very expensive uh, safety procedures could be put in place to avoid some of the most hazardous maimings and fatalities that have happened. And children are being forced to do this work and they're, they're getting maimed and murdered. Yeah, and basically what you're looking at is something that is all too common, if not the most common thing. It's just total extraction. There is, they'll use the arguments. They will always use the arguments when they're trying to get the concession in the first place. Oh, it's good for local development. It'll be good for jobs, blah, 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 blah. It's just totally extractive. They don't give a damn um, about those things. And of course, again, once again, it's being financed. You know, um, So you get companies like BlackRock who are sort of supporting the banks that are supporting um, these companies, largely Malaysian banks in this case. Um, so someone's paying for it. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, it's being bought by these you know, global brands like Nestle and Cargill and Hershey's and Kellogg's, um, who, to their credit, when we wrote, when we published a report, we wrote opportunity to comment letters to them as part of good journalistic practice, as we do. And virtually, if not all, of those suppliers immediately cut that company out of their supply chain. Um, Even Nestle? I couldn't, I don't know um, on, on the Nestle one, but many of those companies did before the report was published. Because, and this is one of, you know, in my experience as a, as a campaigner, there are some things that companies simply can't afford to mess you around with or mess anyone around with. And if you're, if a company is associated with violence, with killings, the kind of stuff we're reporting, if it's a legitimate company, they've got to back away. It's, there's no 
There's no control. See, there's no grey area. Right. Except, of course, that slavery that the cocoa plantations in Cote d'Ivoire is fine for this slave. Yeah, if they, if, they, if they get well and truly nailed. Yes, I guess some yeah. of them are different and, and, and whatever. But, yeah. um, but, of course, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, the banks, you know, they have zero deforestation policies that shouldn't have been there in the first place. They don't check. This is one of the things that they should be checking. They should be verifying before they go in there. And th- those big companies we're talking about should be verifying. It shouldn't take an NGO like us to do it. Mm. And they should be doing it. They're the ones with the money. Um, But they don't, unless you push them. So it's, it's, you know, I guess sort of in a slight contradiction to what I said, once they're faced with the facts, they sometimes don't have much of a choice but to do something. But they're quite probably quite comfortable with not knowing all the facts because then they don't have to do anything. I think that that's, that's the personal point. Let's not investigate because we don't want to find out. And until somebody points it to us and there's sufficient public pressure, then, uh, you know, we'll wait till that moment because we're making so much profit of it. Um, But you said something earlier that, well, I mean, you're saying everything that's very important, but you said something earlier that really struck me and you said it's total extraction, total natural extraction. And so when we think about how the forests are being decimated, these old-growth forests, and uh, just because they're planting trees doesn't mean that um, they're doing something environmentally uh, beneficial because these forests are not forests. They're cemeteries. There's no birds would live there. They're just absolute monoculture cemeteries. And, of course, the people don't get any sustenance from the forest either, and they're forced to work. So the people are actually being, their resource is being extracted. They are seen as a resource, a natural resource to be exploited and extracted. Their work is extracted just like the forests. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it is total extraction, and I really agree with your point. I think you can, you can plant a tree, but you can't plant a forest. You know, a forest evolves over millennia. Yeah. Or, or millions of years in terms of building an ecosystem. And part of that ecosystem in most parts of the world has always included people who consider themselves, very often the ones I've talked to, you know, they think of themselves. They, they, don't, they don't question the fact they're part of that ecosystem like we in the West do. You know, a lot of us sort of go, oh, the environment's not that important an issue. You think, well, actually, actually we're living in it, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but these, these people absolutely are on the front lines in many ways, one of which is they're on the front lines of knowing how to live with their environment in a sustainable way um, and have, you know, a really good standard of living. It may not be how we regard, you know, we, it may not be a GDP growth standard of living. Um, Vanuatu is an interesting example where I think it's, you know, one of the you know, lower level countries in the World Bank index of um, you know, GDP and therefore regarded as a poor country. Um, but I, I heard the, the foreign minister of Vanuatu speak a, a few years ago, who said, but yeah, that's, that's, that's true, that is what the World Bank says, but if you, you look at the kind of index that's been recently done on the happiest countries in the world, we were number six, um, because people had the right to the land, um, they had enough food from the forest, fish from the sea, they're happy. It's like, you know, what's the right measure? It's certainly not GDP growth, no. unlimited growth in a finite world, you know, that's that's just a question of um, when are you going to hit the buffers, not if. Yeah, I, I think Robert McNamara, when he became head of the World Bank, developed that working for less than $2 a day. But it really uh, spearheaded agribusiness going in and taking people from subsistence farming where they actually had enough to eat and um, were happy 
and working with the environment to uh, becoming debt peons. <laughs> and, um, and I'm not saying that was his in- intention, but um, it was utilised that way. The bottom line is that these people need to have the choice. Yeah. And they, they are entitled to it under international agreements, free prior and informed consent. Um, but they're very often usually not given that choice. Um, so it's just a merely, you know, all we have to do is make sure that international debt sort of resolutions of the UN are implemented. Um, and I, I, I've got another sort of small, strong view on this one, which is that, and I've seen this for myself in, in various places, a company might go into a, a community and say, OK, we want to, the, the, to do a consultation on, on free prior informed consent and say, OK, yeah, we want to uh, you know, plant palm oil. Um, and, you know, if, if we come, you know, you'll get a school, you'll get a clinic, you'll get, you know, we'll build a road. Um, these are things that should be right for these people, not something that they get because they sign away their land. Um, right. So is that free? I don't think so. Um, is it informed? Maybe not. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the other thing. You know? and I, I, I've seen that. I've talked to villagers who've been through this sort of stuff. If you've got a community that has lived for all of its memory in a certain way, how can they conceive of their way of life changing as dramatically as it's suddenly thrown at them? You know, because you might say, okay, we plant a plantation. And I've talked, this is a real example uh, of talking to not just one person, but various villages. And, and they said, but they didn't tell us that they'd take away our farm. Mm. You know, it's logical. You know, if you're going to plant a plantation, your farm's gone. But they just didn't, it wasn't in their understanding that how could anyone possibly think of doing that? You know, their farm being the forest, you know, right. um, because it's it's like us sort of suddenly throwing, you know, suddenly saying, OK, you know, our, our societies in, in, in the West, you know, and they're suddenly going to plant a rainforest on top of us. Um, right. And you think, would, would you like to rewild your area? Yes, please. I didn't you mean you don't on my house, you know. Um, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of comparison. Well, perhaps because they live lives in terms of coexistence and um, the interplay of everything and the environment and they're a part of the environment. And so they understood, oh, you want to plant. And that's great. There's more vegetation. And they didn't realise that it seems um, it's my way and the highway, because that's what I'll build <laughs> through your land. And, and here and there, I'll dot a few trees um, that I will then cut immediately. Um, so, yeah, I think it's um, this either or me against you, I'm profiting of you. It's it's a, not a very um, indigenous way of life. So Not at all. Yeah. And I, so- I, I think it's, it's a key message that the, the development model, it's so often, going back to the fossil fuel companies as well, what's sold to the, the people in wherever area it is, but also to the wider population in, in, in their home countries, is development. That's how it's sold. That's, so we organisations like ours are always being called anti-development. I'm not anti-development. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's, again, the industry sort of, I don't know if that's greenwashing, but it's something washing. It's just bullshit, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's that perversion of of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And they're doing it to make as much money as they can. And speaking of perversion, I wanted to address the certification process for palm oil, which lacks teeth, but also appears to be really misleading. So could you tell us um, how it works and what this mass balance calculation 
is that allows uh, companies to essentially mislead that they're getting palm oil from these organic, sustainable plantations when they're really not. Yeah, but we've, we've never been a fan of third-party certification schemes. We don't think voluntary measures work. And they can also be perverted. So, for example, under the RSPO, the, the Roundtable round for Sustainable Palm Oil uh, rules, they can mix, you know, 50-50, um, you know, good organic palm oil with you know, something of a lower quality. And, and it, will, it will get the box ticked um, in terms of certification. So it's extremely misleading to the public. And going further than that, and again, we've you know, been involved in, in various instances of this if there is a problem in terms of they, they, they break their rules then someone has to bring a complaint and it's not that easy to bring a complaint and, and local communities would usually need outside help to do it, it takes a very long time it then takes a very long time to investigate it and if it's found to be and we're not talking about a criminal process here we're talking about kind of an auditing process and if something if it's found out that yeah the company screwed up um, the, 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 the penalties are extremely weak, um, weak enough to be useless. And a local community, meanwhile, has to sustain the pressure of a complaint when they've got other things to do, like, you know, live. Yeah. Um, so it's, and we've seen that with, you know, Forest Stewardship Council, we've seen it with the RSPO. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just, uh, it's not the answer. It's, it's um, a false justification. Hmm, I agree. I wanted to address global witness at COP26 recently, and uh, you disclosed the voluminous presence of the fossil fuels industry. The Sustainable Development Conference years ago decided to have major groups uh, participation. Uh, factor was meant to be civil society, indigenous groups, women, so forth. And then, of course, the corporate lobby came in. But you really exposed how much of the fossil fuels industry was there. And also, you brought the issue of the uh, terrorization and merger of frontline environmental defenders to the forefront. Can you tell our audience more about uh, Global Witnesses' activities at COP26 recently? Yeah, certainly. Well, these, these COPs are, have never been renowned for their um, inclusivity. They're, you know, from a, an NGO or Indigenous people's perspective, they're a very difficult environment to operate in. Um, and in Glasgow, you know, where, where the negotiations were happening and where the NGOs were put, you know, it was 20 minutes apart on foot. <laughs> Um, you know, so, so that angle is, is very difficult itself. But we, what we basically did, again, our, our data investigations team was to sort of look further into this, into the representation, and they're sort of looking at the fact that there were 28,000 delegates um, registered for the COP. We crunched the numbers, and in fact, 500 of those were the fossil fuel lobby. They were bigger than any international delegation. Mm. They were... I think five times more fossil fuel delegates than delegates from the uh, six countries most affected by climate change um, and outnumbered the indigenous peoples by, I think, two to one. Um, and, you know, and the indigenous peoples, again, being the, the best protectors of the land that we're, we're, we're talking about. So this just goes to show the strength of the fossil fuel industry. And of course, what did we get out of the COP? Did we get, you know, everyone, you know, the, you know strict rules imposed on the fossil fuel industry? No, we didn't. Is there, any, is there any coincidence there? Right. Did Global Witness also stage an event where they read out the names of all the environmental defenders 
that were murdered for essential land grabs to uh, steal their traditional lands and, of course, um, the biodiverse forests that um, stabilise our environment and our climate. Yes, we, we're working with um, you know, various other organisations we projected. I think it was, it was over a 1,000 names of, and the, the numbers are probably higher, but a 1,000 names of the people we knew about had been murdered since the Paris Agreement. Um, and there were you know, various organisations, various indigenous peoples groups, chanting those names, remembering them and looking at them. Bill McKibben, a uh, well-known climate activist, did a talk there. And it was a really moving event to, to draw attention to, you know, the very obvious victims of the climate crisis, um, the people who were trying to protect their territory, that had they, you know, if they succeed, that's part of our solution, but they're murdered for it. We needed to remember that. We needed to remember it in the, uh, in the, the context of this big bean fest of, of the COP. Mm, yeah, sometimes with these conferences the only real result is everybody's exhaling carbon dioxide and just contributing to the climate crisis so with their water bottles and their papers and um yeah so it's it's really important to particularly bring names of people um to the forefront because statistics just don't do that right if you say well a thousand people have been killed people tend to and so many statistics at the un too i mean they have a whole intranet of acronyms that um uh, one was uh, when DPKO, DRC, SCA. I remember seeing that one. I was like, what is this? What is this meeting on? Um, and it was, um, it ended up being uh, that the, the, it was sexual um, exploitation and abuse uh, by DPKO officers in the DRC. But when you just read it as an acronym or you read something as numbers, you know, it, it doesn't, um, you can gloss over it. You can have coffee over it, have your meeting and you don't feel the emotional impact. So it's really pertinent to read the names out, show the faces of the people that um, have and been... Uh, and it's something we've done since the beginning when we've reported, we've produced this annual report on the killings of defenders, and one page, where if we can fit them all on one page, are the names. Um, so, which is a way of saying that it's a massively underreported issue. There are lots of people who've been killed that we will never hear about. So the figures we produce are a minimum and their names are all there. We know the histories of those people. So I'd like to end on a positive note. So the past couple of years have also resulted in significant wins for corporate accountability, right? The courts in Canada, the Netherlands and France have held corporations accountable for environmental destruction and um, also uh, aiding uh, terrorists. And there is legislation in the EU to mandate diligence and transparency in supply chains that I believe is being uh, debated uh, next year and uh, will hopefully pass. And there's also a cultural movement. Even some corporations are, uh, and banks are even um, returning their interest. So ANZ Bank, for instance, after much public pressure, returned the interest it received from companies uh, in Cambodia. I think it was uh, Phnom Penh Sugar that um, essentially forcibly evicted all these farmers from their land. And um, ANZ, uh, that's the Australia-New Zealand Bank, um, returned uh, the interest to the Cambodian farmers. So can you tell us more about this step, both in the legal and cultural spheres, for a move towards corporate accountability? 
Yeah, certainly. Well, as we've talked about during this, this discussion, um, companies are a major part of the problem. Um, and our campaign on corporate accountability, and we've been working with um, you know, many, many uh, partner organisations to get the EU to adopt a law um, of mandatory supply chain due diligence, whereby importers of goods um, into the EU will have to do due diligence on their supply chains to expose environmental or social and or social harm. Um, and, if, and if that's there, then those, what we hope for is that those imports would be banned. Um, so that's kind of what we're going for. Um, and you know, one of the things that we did earlier this year, um, which I think was critically important, was that the EU uh, had a consultation um, so people could feed in their opinions. Um, but EU consultations online are kind of notoriously laborious things to do. So again, our data investigations team created software whereby it made it much, much easier for for people to, to fill in the form, if you like. Because what we really wanted to do was to make sure that the people most affected, again, the people in the, the communities concerned, most concerned by um, these supply chains, had a say. And so we, we produced this software, we had it translated into numerous languages um, and very actively reached out to, to our partners. Um, and we ended up with something just short of half a million uh, submissions to the EU on that consultation, which is one of the biggest numbers I've ever had, um, which was an incredibly important thing to do. Um, we've yet to see what the draft law looks like, um, uh, but obviously we'll, you know, we and others will, will have our eyes on it to see it's as strong as possible, but you know, the, the law will come in. And, and only uh, this week, um, the draft deforestation law um, was uh, published by the EU. Um, which again, you know, looks at you know, supply chain due diligence, etc., and, and you know, it had some some very good things in it, um, but also had a lot of holes. And one final question: How can our listeners be active in helping the climate and human rights and support Global Witnesses' mission? One thing I should say, just to start off with, one thing is that it would be great if people were very active. Um, I think it's really important to make sure that the real pressure is on the companies, the banks, et cetera, because it shouldn't be the responsibility of, of individuals um, to sort of sort this problem out. I'm not saying that that's, that's not a way of saying we don't want help, because we do. Um, yeah, so um, individual people, um, obviously, there's the usual things you can do to sort of live a more sustainable life. But I think that really tangible things are things like, you know, Where's your pension invested in? Which companies, you know, which institutional investors? Um, what do you buy? Um, and actually to really call people out, um, you know, if, if you want to sort of call out a commodities company or a food company for, you know, still having palm oil from dodgy places, write to them, say so. Um, mm -hmm. but, I, but I think, again, it comes down to the money. I think, you know, where do you invest? What, who do you bank with? Um, and especially the institutional investors, the pension funds, you know, are enormously powerful. Um, and, you know, ESG is a, is a growing thing. It's not like all investors are, are, are bad on this. You know, Legal and General, for example, are doing a lot of uh, good work in this direction, as are others. So it's, it's, in some cases, it's, it's an open door. So people need to keep pushing it. Thank you, Dr. Ryan.
One thing people can do is go to our website, www.globalwitness.org, um, where they can sign up to take part in, in public and digital actions. That would be really helpful for us. Yes, please do. Well, thank you very much for your time, Patrick. I really appreciate it and for your key insight into these pertinent issues. Well, thank you very much for having me. For more info on how you can learn more about these issues and help stop environmental destruction, corruption, conflict and human rights abuse, go to www.globalwitness.org.